Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. I think one of also important issue I think is the mental health, and um, I don't know what you think about AI's strides in tackling the loneliness of many people, whether elderly or young people. What do you think about this? Uh, what can we do with AI to tackle the loneliness? Well, I think that we'd be better off using AI's tools mm-hmm. to help the lonely. How? To put things in your house. I mean, you could put a robot in somebody's house that moves with, or a moving screen with some sort of character on there that's an avatar and completely deceive them. But but there's, I, I know about a company in Denmark, Mark, uh, I forget what it's called now. Oh, God, I wish I remembered what it was called. A really good company that made a, made a, a robot, which I strongly approve of, for a boy who could not leave his home at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he was what what they called a real life bubble boy, not because he would be harmful to other people, but he was highly susceptible to infections that would kill him very quickly. Oh. So he couldn't leave his bedroom, and they got him set up with a robot mm-hmm. that would go to school, that would sit in the school on his desk, and other kids could interact with it. He could interact with the teacher through it and everything else, yeah. and he appeared on the screen like a sort of iPad screen with him on the screen talking to people. So he got companionship through being out there through the use of a robot. Mm -hmm. Now that I really approve of. That's some some sort of artificial fake thing in your home pretending to be to like you. I mean, it's pretense, isn't it? Pretending to love you or like you. Mm -hmm. And then what they did as well then, that same company developed communication methods, very high-speed communication links with AI to help old people be in touch with their families all the time mm-hmm. through iPads. So a robot with an iPad that could follow them around and they could speak, they could just say, come, and it would come. And, um, and when it came, it would say, could you call my daughter? And it would call their daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I mean by the use of AI tools. And, you know, my imagination is limited, but there's a lot of great, smart young people out there who could be thinking of all sorts of tools to put humans in touch with humans. I mean, as time goes on and we might all become isolated when we've got major climate change, and then we're going to have to worry about that kind of thing. And it would be so much better to have have AI helping us communicate and get in touch with each other. That's, I think that humans really need humans and human companionship. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll go completely crazy. Yeah. And yeah, and and in this point, I would like to ask you, do you think that feeling is something we can do it in robotics, something when AI, the feeling besides intelligence, do you think something is is achievable and moment you see robots with feeling now? Do you think that? I don't think there's very much likelihood of, of it at the moment. I don't know when that could happen because we don't know what feeling is. Mm-hmm. You might be able to indicate a brain part. You might be able to find all the hormones moving around your body yeah. when you get feeling. And mood can be affected by simple things like, you know, the way the molecules are moving between the synapses in your nervous system. You know, we, we have things like we have those uh, really good antidepressants now that stop the um, 
noradrenaline or whatever whatever it is molecules that pass across the synapse not being taken up again or on the other side and that affects your mood dramatically you're depressed if you don't so we don't fully understand what emotional feeling is mm-hmm. what you could do is get a robot to act out a range of emotions they already do that and also robots are getting much better at classifying emotions although recently there's yeah. been a massive psychological review of all the psychological literature on understanding and classifying emotions and what robots are good at doing is is very good at classifying the classic emotions. Mm-hmm. So you smile at it and it says you're happy, but it might be a sarcastic smile. It can't tell yeah. that. You know, it can tell it can tell you're looking sad, you're looking disgusted, you're looking angry, though angry and disgusted quite often get mixed up. So it can tell a range of emotions. But humans aren't even good at are, are, they don't use the full range of emotions. What humans are good at doing is telling what the emotion is in context. Like I mentioned earlier, the robot wouldn't tell if your child was crying because it dropped its lollipop or its mother had just died. But a mm. human will understand context yeah. in a way that a robot won't. So, so it might be able to classify emotions. It'll get better and better at that. And I'm not too bad at classifying those, though you could be lying. I mean, yeah. how often do we feel really sad, but you're going to keep looking good for the sake of your kids? Mm. You've just heard that a friend has died, but your child's there and you've got to smile and laugh with them and you're just pretending, you know. So it doesn't really tell what your emotion is. Um, and an adult might notice, though. Mm-hmm. So you'll get good at those two things. But the bit in the middle called feeling, I think most people, very, very few people working in emotional robotics would tell you that it's ever actually going to feel emotion. And it would need to be something very different. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future, whether whether robotics and, and uh, you know, genetic engineering will amalgamate. And at that point, I would no longer call that artificial intelligence because artificial mm-hmm. intelligence by its nature was silicon based. It wasn't grown. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, that I don't know what sort of future we'll have there. So I, I don't really know. I'm talking about, you know, yeah. hundreds of years time. Yeah. And I would like to ask you about politics, but because I think one of the issues about using AI, like re-identification of people, data, personal data, I don't know what you think about uh, this issue. It's just something like endanger people's privacy when you use kind of this uh, algorithm to re-identify their identities or personal data. I don't know who is just leading as this kind of like uh, the politics and how we use these tools. Uh, can you tell us more about that in your concern in political level? Sure. I could spend a very long time talking about this. Okay. This is another thing. Well, it mixes with the algorithmic inequality as well, because it's, it's all part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kinds of people who are being where this technology is being used. But let's start off by let's look at face recognition, for mm-hmm. instance. Now, face recognition was, you know, everybody said, oh, it's solved pretty much. In the labs, you've got 98% face, face recognition from static photographs. And it has, it, I mean, it has developed greatly during my lifetime before they used machine learning when they were just writing programs. It would still work, but, but, um, but now what you find out 
that was great in the lab, but when you get out of the lab, it's a whole other matter. It's not very good at all. Mm-hmm. And particularly women and people of, of darker shades of skin. It's terrible. And But even in ordinary people. So so our police force, for instance, and I've been out with our police force on, on test trials with this. So I've seen exactly how it works. And you can watch it going through a crowd really fast. There's little boxes like you see on Facebook when you're tagging. These little boxes just go like a machine gun across crowds looking for uh-huh. particular people. And uh, and then when it finds somebody, it flashes them up and the police move in to get them. But, you know, the police were using this in, in South Wales and in London. And so Big Brother Watch, one of our NGOs, used the Freedom of Information Act to get datas on all, data on all these trials. And it turned out that the very best they did was 5% accuracy. 5%. Mm-hmm. not 98% accuracy. And at the Notting Hill Carnival, which is a sort of Jamaican Afro-Caribbean carnival, it was 2% accuracy. Oh, that's bad. And now the accuracy of who they picked up and brought in for questioning was was greater. Uh, That came out at about 25 to 30% accuracy after an officer had checked the two images. Uh, mm. But images are not a good thing to work on. Now, the ACLU, the uh, the Civil Liberties, American Civil Liberties Association, did a very clever trick because they couldn't get Congress to listen to them about the police use. And so they ran it through all the photographs. They took the, the recognition one, the Amazon one, that the police are using and ran it through Congress mm-hmm. and found out 28 members of Congress were identified as dangerous criminals. Now, that has really changed the view of Congress altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's just some of the technologies. We're seeing in the UK technology being used for predictive policing, trying to work out where the crime might happen, what neighbourhoods, trying to work out who might be associated with who in a gang, where the criminals might be. And as many people and NGOs point out, if you look at if the police look closely enough at any neighborhood, it might be a white middle class neighborhood who who they're all taking cocaine. But, you know, that's never found out because that's not where they look. And it causes a sort of vicious circle feedback. It seems tends to be by all the stuff I see throughout the world and all the algorithmic use, it tends to be about the poor, the vulnerable. Mm-hmm you know, the minorities and minority groupings. Now, then you look at China and it's the whole population is in danger here because, you know, I'm complaining to you about face recognition being inaccurate. Well, I have to say that once it's very accurate, it's going to be even worse. Uh Why? I mean, you don't want to be identified all the time. I mean, I'm Mm. a private person. I'm not breaking the law. But when I'm in my home, I yeah. don't want somebody looking in my windows at me all the time. Yeah. None of us do. You don't want cameras on your head. The big excuse is if you've got nothing to hide, why would you worry? Mm-hmm. Well, I've plenty to hide. It's called my privacy. It's my private life <laughs> to hide. And, you know, and when you look at this, this, the whole idea of this kind of surveillance, and, you know, I'm somebody who read all those books like Orwell's 1984. And the way I'm looking at technology at the moment, the power we have of it. Yeah. The absolute power, without going through all the details, makes what George Orwell and George Orwell wouldn't couldn't even have imagined that kind of power to take away our rights and our privacy. And people don't realise they say, well, you know, it'll catch terrorists. That's the usual thing, or found lost children, or those kind of reasons always for this technology. But you know, governments and police will will only 
um, have crimes, mainly only have crimes in which you could actually find people breaking the crimes, mm. arrest them for it. Now in China, I'm hearing that people are being arrested for walking across the road. Yeah. You know, they're being arrested for throwing down litter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you start inventing all these tiny little crimes. And this is once you can monitor all of your population and the way they would vote in an election, and you can do all that monitoring. There's no such a thing as personal liberty now. They have us. And it's just ready for an. I mean, we might all live in democracies now, but they're going to be sitting there ready for an authoritarian regime to take over. And they would be over, be able to take over in a way that we can't beat, except that humans are really, really resourceful. <laughs> you know, we can beat face recognition te- mm-hmm. technology. There's many ways to do it. And then they have, they try using methods now like gate recognition. That's the way you walk. So they can tell from the way you walk in particular who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but even that, you see, you know, there's a book, Bigger Brother. By, it's a really good book uh, by Cory Doctorow, and all the characters in there because they use gait recognition the way they walk, and uh, they all just put stones in their shoes mm-hmm. differently every day. So when you're walking with stones in your shoes, you have to walk in a completely different weird way. <laughs> So, so you know, we'll always, hopefully, we'll always find a way around it. But that might be difficult when you're being monitored everywhere you go, yeah. know everywhere you go. And I don't think that's going to happen because I think we're, you know, we have to get the population and the regulators behind this and stop it. Not many people want it. And again, it has to be done internationally. I said that earlier, but mm-hmm. I never said why. Because the problem is, supposing I convinced the UK to go really hard on all the regulation of these technologies. Yeah. That would be very anti-competitive. Mm-hmm. So we convinced all of Europe and all of America. Now China and other countries outside of that could be so you know develop it to high heaven. So yeah. it's got international. It's got to be something through something like the UN Human Rights. That's a tricky point. This is a tricky point, I think. Yeah, it is. It really is a hard one. I really appreciate that. But the UN Human Rights Council could look at that and and develop a new bill of digital human rights. I'm not the only one suggesting that. I've been suggesting that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And but it really does need something like that we 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 can't go on like this much longer and those digital human rights would not be about the technology and and people always say oh you can't regulate the technology because it keeps changing all the time yeah and i agree with them but what you can do is you can regulate the technology with respect to how it is used against humans Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that future-proofed yeah. If I say that a camera may not observe me without my knowledge, that doesn't matter, or or I can't be observed with any technology without my knowledge. Yeah. That, that means that no technology can be used to observe me without my technology. You know. So it's so it's it's that kind of thing because I mean it's also not just people, but it's it's the big tech companies starting to use face recognition. I mean, and it's illegal in Europe, and yet we found my local shopping mall had been using it for two years. <laughs> but under under the under our GDPR, you may not store data about anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be targeted by salespeople, never mind the terrible things that have <laughs> done to me, you know, anywhere else. You imagine a sales staff talking to you or a robot salesperson talking yeah. to you, even sales staff, and monitoring your heart rate and all those bio signs. They know when you're excited about something. Okay. They, 
the price up. You know, they can do all those things. So we're at a very dangerous time at the moment. I might sound like I'm, I'm going crazy here talking about this, but it's the kind of thing that we really need, especially those of us who, who worked in the field, really need to be thinking about. And I'm very happy to tell you there's so many NGOs now springing up, tech NGOs, and so many very responsible people thinking about this. And it gives me a great deal of hope, really, for the future. That's very great. I think there's also a great point. And actually, there are many points, but I think uh, I, I would like, uh, because I take a lot of time, so I, I would like to ask about, uh, because you always interested about uh, the killing machine, I think it's a very interesting point. Um, um, I don't know what you think about, like, Chelsea um, aircraft or vehicles that, like, uh, P2 Spur or something like that. I don't know whether people in, in, in military companies have like responded to the movement of. That's a that's a big question. I, I guess I started um, really campaigning about um, so-called killer robots. I didn't call them that. I called them autonomous weapons systems, mm -hmm. the robot weapons. In, in back in 2007, when I wrote my first article for the national papers on this issue and our campaign started at the UN in 2013 and we're 130 NGOs big ones like Human Rights Watch Amnesty International from 60 countries and a lot of international ones and we've been working at the UN about three four weeks a year for the last six years mm -hmm. and making a lot of progress we have 30 countries that fully support us okay. including China strangely um, oh. the, the support us But then we have, and we have all the European countries, him and ha, they want to support us, but they want to keep America and Russia on board. And America and Russia are just not going to be on board. They uh -huh. want to develop robot weapons. And people shouldn't think of these as like the Terminator, though every time they're talked about in the papers, there's always a picture of the Terminator. Um, these look, these are sort of like conventional weapons, really tanks, fighter jets, ships, submarines, those kinds of things. Uh, drones, mm -hmm. but they're completely controlled by computer. So once they're launched, they go out, they look for targets, they find them, they select them, and then they apply violent force to them and probably kill them, but applying violent force to them without any human supervention, uh, without any human supervision, mm -hmm. intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, so this to me is is bad for quite a number of reasons and you know there's at least three categories of reasons one is that i don't believe that these robots or these weapons could comply with the laws of war certainly not at the moment and i can't see it coming into the future uh their unpredictability for a start um and also that you know they're they're not good they're not that good at telling the difference between civilian and non-civilian targets and using them in current warfare where they talk about insurgent warfares where people aren't wearing uniforms i mean i think that humanitarian wise they can't be proportionate You know, there's so many reasons under the laws of war where they'd be very difficult to uh, to really justify. But they could be used in very straightforward ways that could comply with the laws of war, like substituting them for a cruise missile being mm -hmm. sent to an exact target like a bridge where they fire missiles at the bridge and then come back and get reloaded. So that could be legal under the laws of war. But the problem is once manufacturers, and they are working like crazy to develop them, mm -hmm. once they're out there, their uses will shift. And we've seen that with aerial bombs, for instance. Mm -hmm. 
the most indiscriminate form of current warfare, where they just, they were totally indiscriminate. In 1938, the president of the United States, Roosevelt, wrote to the 1936, wrote, or 38, I can't remember which, but he wrote to all the European nations asking them, you're about to go to war with each other, please don't use this indiscriminate form of warfare. Six years later, they were dropping nuclear weapons on on. Japan hmm. and submarines the United States said would never would only be used around ships to protect them and then once Pearl Harbor came they went everywhere and so once you get these weapons out there everybody will use them it's a delusion to think yeah. and some some European countries think they're morally great and we'll only use them in very specific ways but what about other people who copy them we told them this about drones, that this would happen. And they said, oh, no, you need massive infrastructure. Only the United States or Europe could have that kind of infrastructure. Now we've got more than 80 countries with armed drones. Turkey has the largest number outside of the United States. You know, So these things happen very quickly. And so you've got to, our point at the beginning of my organization was simply to create a, a situation where all the nations were talking to each other about it. And we couldn't do that as a group of academics. But once we started campaigning, every, most nations know about it, at least at the UN. Every nation at the UN now knows about the problem and they will discuss it. But, you know, manufacturers, I've talked to manufacturers, especially in the early days about it. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, even was talking to them about very intelligent cluster munitions mm -hmm. to get right the cluster munitions. And they say, I say, well, how do you sleep at night? Really? Yeah, well, of course, because oh. they're making these terrible weapons. And they say, well, I mean, this would be a, a guy called Bob who would be vice president of a company and a very nice guy. He had mm -hmm. a dog and a couple of kids. And, you know, and I'd say to him, you know, I'd be friendly with them. Of course, I'm, they're humans. And say, well, you know, why would you do this? I mean, do you not feel guilty about it or lose sleep? And he said, oh, no, of course not. I'm just manufacturing them. I'm not using them. Is it make you furious or anger? About this reaction? No, because it's just a human reaction. It's the way it is. And what it does is it it, it gives me great resolve to get it changed, mm -hmm. is to change their attitude. But you can change the attitude of people who are making stuff for profit. I mean, it's it's, it's about big profits driving it largely. Yeah. You know, when the X-47B is a famous uh, fighter jet, fully autonomous fighter mm -hmm. jet, made by Boeing to begin with. And it was... And what Boeing did was they, they made sure that the components for that were made in 40 different states in America. So there were jobs for people in 40 different states. And they had then 40 different congressmen on their side. Mm. You know, and so, you know, it's, it's done very cleverly. But then they started that. But now it's taken a life of its own because China are making them. Russia are making them. Israel are making them. The UK are, you know, many countries. Turkey are making them. And so now it's becoming an arms race. And mm -hmm. so it's not just the manufacturers. And when I talk to people at the UN, they'll say, well, yeah, we could support your campaign. But then if we support it, what about the others? They'll make them secretly. And there's that kind yeah. of paranoia and suspicion that you've got to try and break through. And we're just going to keep on going at this for as long as we can. Um, and we're getting bigger and stronger and collecting more money and more people. And we've had thousands of the world's greatest scientists um, and, and most of the... All the all the all the leaders of machine learning, including mm -hmm. 
deep mind itself, you know, yeah. the best guy company in the world, all coming to the UN, all writing letters, all standing up for us and saying, yes, this isn't fit for purpose. And yet it still goes on. We've, we've got all the church leaders now doing the same, you know, and, and people, mm-hmm. so many people, companies, scientists, uh, us, and even other, other countries. But somehow, um, you know, countries have to defend themselves. And so it's ministries of defense. It's their job to defend their country the best way they can. And, you know, we need them. We need them to defend us. But they don't think about what the consequences are for global security. That's the other, that's the second group of arguments. So how, why does this help global security? You know, we could have accidental conflicts. We could have con- people going into conflicts in Africa because they know they don't have autonomous weapons. It makes it so much easier. But the big one for, for computer, for the ICT professional to think about, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and it's the killer one that changes everything, is that... Everybody talks about, they're not talking about sending one robot alongside a soldier. Mm -hmm. All the talk now is about swarms. So they talk about having swarms of fighter jets, swarms of warships, swarms of tanks, etc. So a big number, one person sends them in. And of course, one person can't see what every individual attack is. They might be able to call them back if communications haven't been broken. But one of the points of using them is that they'll still complete the mission if communications have been broken. So you have these swarms of things. And one of the big problems anybody working in computing will be able to tell you about is what happens if an unknown algorithm interacts with an other known unknown algorithm? Uh-huh. Got lots of, they've got lots of protections built into finance now for this, luckily. But, you know, we've got an example where two algorithms met in the booksellers and on Amazon competing with one another. Nobody noticed for a book for a week and a book went from $50 a used book to $23 million in the space of a a week. Nobody knows what can happen if two unknown algorithms meet and compete. Mm. Now, you take two swarms of autonomous weapon systems pitted against each other, and there's no way that they will ever reveal what their combat algorithm is because that can make countering them easier. Mm. So what happens when they meet? No one knows. They can be using adversarial images. They can be sending, you know, they can start jamming. They can spoof them into making other robots think they're somewhere that they're not. All those things, they can be crashing into cities and all sorts of things. I see that as a total nightmare waiting to happen. And it could really happen. And it won't stop it if it gets full momentum. So we're trying to stop it before it starts. And it's, it's almost already getting too late. Yeah. That's very scary as well because, uh, and because we have like still technology and and it's like uh, going to the privacy of other nations. So, and we see that U.S. and Russia have anti-anti still technology and still going anti-anti anti still technology. So it's exactly. crazy. Yes, and look at the speed. I mean, the the U.S. have got up to now having an unmanned hypersonic aircraft. Oh, okay. That will travel. I mean, according to. Um, I'm trying to think, 13,000 miles an hour, 22,000 kilometers an hour, which is a ridiculous yes, speed. Yes. But that's the kind of way they're thinking, and they want to get a team of these anywhere on the planet within an hour. Well, once they get to that speed, then you're taking humans out of the loop altogether. You'll have yeah. to make hypersonic counterweapons, and there could be a conflict starting to be over in like 50 seconds and, the, and places laid with the <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, I mentioned the last set of arguments, and I'll give you one line. Yeah. It's just that many people believe that morally, it's against human dignity to have a machine decide, make life and death decisions about a human. Hmm. And I'm not a moral philosopher, but I think that that's probably very true. But I, th mind you, I think that m most of warfare is um, against human dignity, but that's another matter. Hmm. That's very, also, I think, philosophically, I think I agree somehow what you say. Uh, but you think that one day there could be competition between robot and human one day and because I, I think if we because we hear about robot and employment about because Boeing yeah. was trying to use robotics for, for physiologic assembly and they just get, get away from this robot because it doesn't do the work right. But if we reverse the coin that do you think that one day robots can really endanger people in general? Or as it happened in the industrial revolution, that machines take everything from human jobs. So, do you think this kind of concern really in coming years? Well, there's there's two separate concerns in there. There's the one of the robots taking jobs and AI taking jobs. Yeah. And that's a genuine concern. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really need to be thinking about that. And I do work on on high level panels about that. But you know, but some of this, of course. As I found out later, after I was, I've gone off the fence and on the fence about this, about how pro, how advanced it really is, but it is danger in the future, definitely. But the, at the moment, what happens is that I find that it's being used by employers to scare employees. You mm -hmm. know, if you don't, if you start asking for more more money and go on strike, you'll be replaced. I mean, the former CEO of McDonald's threatened to replace the burger flippers with these robot arms they're using in San Francisco yeah. that come much faster than a human, much, much faster, like, like, you know, 40 burgers a minute made from fresh meat, you know, um, but, but they're not very adequate and they couldn't clean around the taps, you know, so there's a lot of things that humans can do that robots can, but that's just for now. I mean, robots are getting better and better and better and they could be able to replace humans. I'd worry about that. But in terms of them, I think you were you were implying that they might be able to replace us all together through evolution. Hmm. No, I think it's up to humans and how we apply them. I, 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 I mean, that's why we have in our foundation for responsible robotics, the one thing we always have, one of our big slogans is humans first always. Yeah. And, and also that for any robot application, there must always be at least one accountable human. Mm. We can never hold robots responsible. And there's talk in, there was talk in the European Union. Luckily, I'm glad to see that it got thrown out by the EC, um, but it went before the parliament and was passed. And the idea was that possi there's a possibility of having uh, legal personhood for robots. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean like they don't have human rights or anything, but legal personhood in the way corporations have personhood. So you'd have to sue the robot. So funds would have to be accumulated by the robot. And then you would sue the robot. But I just see this as a way of sliming out of responsibility. If I'm run over by a robot car and break my legs, mm -hmm. I don't want to be suing a robot car. I think that a human needs to be held accountable. And especially for you know recklessness or endangerment, then it needs to be humans always. Yeah, that's true. So uh, for your imagination, like in coming 100 years, what do you think that robots could be or artificial intelligence, if it would be changed, what you can imagine? 
in a hundred years' you, time, yeah. I, I, I mean, the future's not my period. Yes. And uh, so you couldn't really tell because goodness knows where the technology goes. It can shift very suddenly and not be about AI or computing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It can be some something completely different. It was railways, it was flying, it was television. You know, it, it, it evolves mm -hmm. and changes very quickly. And that makes it hard to know how the tech will, will be in 100 years. But also when you think about 100 years, and I think about this quite a lot because when you look at the, the climate change catastrophe that seems to be underway because we're not working hard enough to stop it, and then you start looking at our technology and mm -hmm. the amount of carbon footprint, the size of the carbon footprint, and people are saying now that data centers alone are, are, are creating 7% of the current carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And then you look at things like training deep mines alpha zero, yeah. And that was like over a hundred million pounds to do that. It took massive amounts of energy. You're talking about 17,000 computers running all the time, day and night. How much power is that using? And and that's just to win at a game. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about artificial general intelligence, if there ever could be such a thing, how much power is it going to need to create that? Have we got enough power on the planet to create that? Can we afford this technology to continue? How many iPhones are being charged every night? How many yeah. billions of iPhones are being charged every night? When we're talking about a panic here to try and cut emissions, to try and cut greenhouse gases, yeah. I think, see, the young people and the old people are kind of alike in this way about technology. And then you've got all the people in the middle who are kind of very pro-technology. They love their phones. They love all this technology. But I think there's a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers and things, who don't like what they see. They don't want to ruin their planet. And they might be prepared to sacrifice not having the technology at all or having cut down versions that are actually beneficial to us. And big companies that have all this tech will be long gone. And they'll be, they'll be sitting in, in huge warehouses with broken windows and tumbleweed blowing by. Mm -hmm. That's not a possibility, a distinct one for me. That is something I would like to ask because the younger generation, maybe millennials as well, because we are stick to the smartphone and technology and feel maybe find secure, being secure through this tech. But in the end, it leads to mental health and loneliness. It's like a struggle because everything now is centered around this technology. I don't know what you think about that because I think it's like uh, an empty loop you're going around and you feel securing through all the tech and you and even people all the time looking to their phones, which sounds crazy somehow. But I don't know what you think about it. Well, when I get my report, my screen time report, I'm shocked. Yeah. Uh, by my own looking at the phone, the number uh -huh. of times I pick it up in a day and the, my amount of screen time. How many? Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the iPhone mm -hmm. or smartphone at all. Um, it's it's a communication device and it's a little computer. I find it incredibly useful just for everything from calculations, all those kinds of things. That I, you know, it's a very high powered computer. When you look at the the computer that beat Gary Kasparov, Deep Blue. Mm -hmm. And it was a supercomputer with 64,000 processors and all this talk about it. And my smartphone, my talk, my pocket's about 100 times more powerful than that. Yeah. And it's really tiny. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But but it's the it's the apps that we use are the problem. Mm. We, know, we know. I mean, I know as a psychologist, 
as well. As I say, I was a psychologist and I know the kind of way that a lot of people, a lot of people, it's all coming out now in Silicon Valley, are using old behavioral psychology methods of addiction Mm -hmm. and working out, you know, the best thing you can do in Silicon Valley as a startup is make your app addictive. If you make an addictive game, you're going to be a billionaire. Oh, that's very tricky. Uh, so you mean you that know, they design it in this purpose? Uh, they design sure. it so that you can't stop using it. You know, you just want to know all the time. And they've designed it, you know, they've designed systems now where I don't just, I don't have notifications switched on for my email. Mm-hmm. Because if I did, I'd just be, I'd spend the whole day because my emails are coming in so rapidly. Yeah. But I have, I have it switched on for for other things. I have it switched on for for um, WhatsApp because my kids all contact me through WhatsApp. So it rings for that. It rings for my texts. Mm-hmm. That's very distracting in itself, but I could have it ringing for my Twitter feed. I could have it ringing for my Facebook, you know, every time somebody posts something, somebody I know, and I could just be spending the whole day on there. So so that is a real worry. And, and you know, I don't know what you do about that. I mean, we made addictive drugs illegal. Mm-hmm. Stop them. There's yeah. still abounding there, but we cut down the number of people using them, but they're still around there. And I don't know what we can do. The only thing you can really do about it is have um, education. Yeah. How to use these and maybe actually look at somehow, and I don't know how, I don't know everything by any means. I don't I don't know that much. I, I, feel, I feel that I'm more of a nowadays a concerned citizen with a lot of technological knowledge so and i i don't know what we can do about it at all but i feel as if we must do something about it and we have again it's very difficult to prove mental health links look somebody uses their phone ridiculously yeah and they get mental health problems now are they using their phone ridiculously because they had in there, in them, a propensity to mental health problems, and that leads them to use their phone so much. Mm. Or is it the phone that's given them the health problem? And those things are very difficult. It takes a lot of difficult research. So maybe we should be conducting more research in this. That's what I would at least recommend, to find out how bad they are for children. I mean, some of my, people differ, don't they? Some of my friends just give their phone to their kids and let them play games on them they get very good at it very quickly and they can find things or they have you know my daughters one of my daughters is very sensible hmm. with my grandchildren who won't let them use iphones at all except for you know kind of applications work that's going to be learning experience for them yeah so even at school she complains that they put homework and she's very, very good at internet. She's been using it since she was very little, but she doesn't want our kids to be addicted to it. She wants them to be creative outside of that particular box. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I don't know the answer. I mean, if you don't equip your kids with it, are you, are you going to then in the future hold them back in their careers? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just don't have the answers. It's a balance but, maybe because it had I mean, downside and upside, but it's like a balance up to parents maybe. We need to find a balance, but we need more, we need guidelines on this. And at the moment, I mean, I'll just say this as well while I'm at it. I mean, at the moment you're getting all these AI principles coming out, you know, Google have them, Facebook have them. They develop all these AI principles and they have AI ethics boards. And the ethics community pretty much now is coming around to the position of calling this ethics washing. Uh-huh. Because right. what you're doing is you set up all these principles, but then you don't follow them. Yeah. 
and so and and I'll say a little bit about this as well, although we used up a lot of time, but but they don't follow them. And also principles are one thing, but actually showing a route from principle into application is another matter. So you find that people are developing the apps for them or applications for them in their company, but they don't know how the principles work with, with regard to the application. Do no harm. Don't use AI to harm people. Well, what does harm mean? What is psychological harm? Is this person developing application an expert on psychological harm? How yeah. are they supposed to know this? And then they have ethics boards who they bring in who have meetings to discuss ethical principles and positions. And that's ethics washing as well. The ethicists join the board with very good intentions. And obviously, ethicists are good, are good people by, by definition. And they work hard at it. But if it doesn't fit into the company's governance and you haven't seen a, a, you know, a graph or a map mm. of how ethics feeds into the governance of the products or you have an ethicist down there working with the apps themselves, then it is ethics washing. It's just, oh. it's stuff that's pumped out to avoid the companies getting regulated. Yeah. So I would like to ask you whether you have any robots at your home or something you designed and up to, ended to be in your home using a regular daily basis, robots or something. I don't have any robots in my home. I, I have lots of robots in my home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got, you know, got an awful lot in cupboards here and there and everywhere that I've built or designed or had built for me. Um, but none of them are very useful. Oh. They were mainly made for, for um, a lot of my robots were made um, either for museum exhibit, exhibitions, yeah. for academic work, or for teaching children in competitions. I mean, I've run robot competitions yeah, all over the games, world. Yeah. And, you know, and so these were made so that children could learn how to program in an easy way and learn about sensors and those things. But I have a, I have a couple of robot vacuum cleaners in the house, probably about three or four. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were great little robots, but they were really bad at vacuuming. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got about two Roombas that are just, I love them and, and you can repurpose them. We can break into them oh. and use them as robots, which is what you have to do if you haven't got a, enough money in your lab. That's nice. Yeah. I would quite like a, a, I would quite like a, a robot um, helper in the kitchen. Oh, okay. I don't want it to do the cooking for me. I, lo I love cooking and I, I'm, you know, creative cook. And uh, But I would be like, quite like it to maybe peel the vegetables. Yeah. yeah. Or hand, hand me things when I need them or do the washing up would be very helpful. Put yeah. the washing in the dishwasher. But even, even the doing of the vegetables, you see, because I don't want vegetables done robotically. I would have to instruct them because, you know, when I pick up a parsnip or carrot, mm -hmm. I will look at that specific carrot and think around it, how I want it cut and what shape I want it, yeah. depending on that particular carrot. Yeah. It's not a uniform thing for me. So it's a creative act for me. And if you've got creative acts, they could act as helpers, but let's not have them do it for us. Man, that's very interesting. Yeah. So let them ask you a philosophical question. Do you think that ego is important for um, a researcher in academia or a leading billionaire in industry? Ego is important? Ego? Yeah. Um, well, it's certainly it's, it is, yes, of course, we all need an ego. Um, but in academia especially, I mean, 
academia is a really hard subject. I mean, I, I'm, I'm somebody who mixes a lot with yeah. different groups of people, but I see different groups meeting a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's, there used to be there's quite a lot of, I mean, the problems between, say, campaigners, humanitarian campaigners who spend their lives dedicated to humanitarian causes, right, mm-hmm. and academic academics. Well, when you work in a campaign, I had to learn myself as an academic, when you work in a campaign, you don't contradict other people in that campaign. You work as a whole. Mm-hmm. You might not agree with something, or you might come up with a great idea, and that camp that idea will sweep through the whole campaign, and everybody's using it. But they don't say, "Oh, it was Sharky, nineteen eleven, who or twenty eleven, who came up with this idea." You have to just let the ideas go. And that's where they are. So it's more of a, a fitting in. But then when you're in academia, the problem is you have, it has to be your work. And yeah. you know, you go for you wait, you go for a job interview, you've done your PhD, and that panel, that job panel wants to work out how much of this was what was your your original contribution to the field? Hmm. And what was also, how much did your supervisor help you? How many original ideas? So when you get, when I get campaign, when I get academics coming in to look at killer robots, for instance, mm-hmm. so pro- ridiculous proliferation of papers at one point saying, ah, yes, but really what we should do, and they would add one little tweak to everything so that that was their original idea. So if you want to succeed in, a, in academia, or be a lead guitarist in a rock band. I used to be that as well. You need you need to have a good, strong ego out there, really. You need to believe in yourself, at least. If you don't believe in yourself, it's going to be very difficult for you. You're not going to get through the ranks quickly, you know, just, do, just working. You've got to really stand up for yourself in academia, certainly. Industry, I'm not sure. I think, I think sometimes cooperation can work much better there. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's a good academia has to change. I mean, it will change. When I first started in academia, there were, I mean, when I was a psychology undergraduate, yeah. we had six men and about 60 women in my class. 60 women? Oh. 60 women in my class. Oh, that's a good number. Yeah. In the faculty, there were 20 men and no women. <laughs> So why do you have this leakage for women? That's just the way. It, that's the way it used to work. I mean, we're talking now about the seventies, and mm. my wife was an undergraduate with me, and she didn't want to be an academic because mm-hmm. she had no academic role model. I mean, she became one anyway, but but uh, but it made it harder. She couldn't imagine herself as a standing up there and lecturing because she hadn't seen women doing it. Uh-huh. It's it's much improved now. It's much much better now. But when I took my first job in linguistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, First job was in, I was a computational, doing computational linguistics as well. And my first job there, and there were very few, there were more women in the linguistics department, but they were kind of language instructor types rather than full on lecturers. And we had one lecturer, a woman who was an anthropologist, and um, she taught me a lot actually about the difference. And her big thing was that the male environment and i don't know this is old-fashioned ideas now but mm. but at that time it made a lot of sense to me she explained to me how how when we go to s- seminars it's all about combative it's all about you know all the metaphors of of argument and discussion are all phrased in terms of war mm-hmm. he really punched him out there you know um 
they're fighting about this all night and they you know all your arguments are phrased in those terms and she at that time i don't know you know i don't know but she felt that women in academia would be much more collaborative working together as a team yeah and i think there's a lot of truth in that i mean i i am i'm unusually <laughs> someone who's had a lot of experience of working in female environments not just in psychology but you know what both when i was a psychiatric nurse i uh, they decided that i was um i was ex- i was they treated me as an experiment okay. uh, so as a first male nurse mm-hmm. to work in all female wards mm. So all my colleagues were female nurses and all the patients were female. Yeah. Also worked in the laundry where I was the only male. So so I had a good understanding of the difference in the cultures and they were definitely different cultures going yeah. on there. And um, I think with academia becoming much more female oriented and bringing a lot more women into tech, I mean, it's disgraceful at the moment. There's 11% yeah. uh, in tech in the UK. It used to be 9 um, there's 20% women in Silicon Valley, and I believe that includes receptionists and secretaries. And until you get that gender parity, yeah, not yeah. going to get this. But I think that that could change the whole course of technology, really. I mean, of course, there's many. I know many women who could cut me off at the legs and could be really much fiercer than me, much certainly much smarter. Um, so it's not, it's a, it's a normal distribution curve. But I think the tendency, and it might just be cultural, but the tendency is to be more cooperative. And I think that's what's needed, more cooperation between teams of people, less ego, and uh, much more much more concern about what the technology does and less, less toys for the boys. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Um, I would like to ask you about your philosophy that you share every day because you have these rich experiences. What is the philosophy you share for your life at the academician and also you presented a lot in, in TV programs. So it's like uh, like there's many, many experiences you have, but what is the philosophy you share every day and nowadays in your life every day? I don't really know. I mean, it's a very difficult question. I do believe in, in, in being myself. Okay. Even if I'm even if I'm talking or anything, just to be true to yourself and being true to yourself is good. If I happen to be a racist bigot, then that might not be good advice. You might not want to be true to yourself. But also, I think, you know, you make things, you do things, but just give it. I mean, I, this is a recommendation. I mean, it would be different in different parts of my life. You know, I can be pretty wild and crazy. Well, I was when I was younger mm-hmm. in my my private life, I enjoy fun and enjoying myself and, you know, being reckless sometimes. Um, but in the world of, of, of technology and things, I just say to people, really be sincere. Think about what you're doing. Don't just think, well, I could get off with this. This would be okay ethically. But just just when you're developing something be, before you start, and this is recommendations I give to the police and people like that as well. Just sit down for before you get too excited about this technology, before you develop it, before you get too excited about applying it widely. Just sit and give it a good lot of very deep, hard thinking. Walk up and down, pace around outside, whatever it is you do to do deep thinking and generate, brainstorm and try and think of what could be wrong with this. 
yeah. negative impact could have this this have on society. And sometimes you find that you know you could think about it for three or four minutes and jumps to you immediately. And people just get overexcited, over enthusiastic. It's like a kid with a parcel, and they just rip it open and uh, maybe play with the box, but they get over enthusiastic. And that's what you should never do. You, you need to put it away for a little bit and have a long, cold, hard think about it. And I would recommend that, but not necessarily in your private life. <laughs> yeah. So what was the best advice was given to you since you were a speech student or because you have a lot of experiences, but what was the best advice, whether on personal level or ex um, professional level, you would like to as share with us? Yeah, as a PhD student, uh, the piece of advice that my supervisor gave me that was that I thought was was very, very useful, yeah. which he would ask me, who's your favorite research? Because you know, I used to read a lot, read enough, you read a lot of papers, you're reading yeah. all these yeah. journal articles, and there might be somebody's work that you really, really like. And he would say, Find out one person that you really like and model yourself on them, model your research on them. And I think that that can be very good. Nowadays, of course, you might want to model yourself on several people, like an ethics person, a researcher, those kinds of things. But find somebody that you can. And then um, when I worked as a, 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 at Stanford, I was, I was running a lab there for, for a man called Gordon Bauer, a very, very famous and brilliant psychologist. And he had to take time out for a few years and, and I ran his lab. And he was so conscientious about finding out all the things I didn't know and training me on them. And his thing was always about, to me, and it was a very good life skill actually, when don't get angry with people Don't get angry with your reviewers, for instance. And his advice to me about when you get reviews from from a journal or from from a you know a conference, and it's a negative review and says you're rejected, the first thing you're going to do is get really angry. Mm. The bloody fools don't understand anything. I mean, I said this and I said that. And his advice was: have a quick look at it, notice that it's been rejected, put it in a drawer for at least four days, and don't think about it do something else and then open it, open the drawer again. You know, you've been rejected and look at it objectively and you're going to find a lot of truth in there. So, <laughs> I think that's a very good piece of advice. Yeah, really. I, 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 I can't agree anymore. That's very good advice. Yeah. But general life skills, what I've learned as an older person is my hormones have died down things, whether I'm driving a car or making a complaint to a company about a bad product is be nice to people. Hmm. Don't get angry on the road because someone cut you out or whatever. Maybe they're on the way to the hospital because their mother is dying and they've got to get there on time. You don't know what's motivating these people at all. Exactly. When you call a company about a product where you just be nice to them, admit that their product is it's a wonderful product, but they've made, maybe made a mistake this time. And could they help you? And I found that ever since I've been doing that, it's it's reaped such enormous benefits. Run me, what the hell are you playing out with this product? I mean, you sold it to me, and that does not get you anywhere. And you learn that through through a, a life of experience. That you, when you do that, you know, and and when you get angry with people on the road or yeah. email or on on Twitter or wherever, and you get angry with people, it's you that's suffering. Yeah. Because you're going to spend the evening feeling all uh, frustrated and angry. Yeah. What's the point? What's the point? 
there's no, it doesn't serve any function. Anger can have a function, yeah. and you use it then. You know, I mean, somebody, some. I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't say I never get angry if somebody fiddled around with one of my grandchildren. I might get really angry and go and punch them on the nose. But you know, but apart from, even though I'm a non-violent person, but apart from that, you know, there's times when anger might be a, a proper response. But generally speaking, a properly planned, cool response is much better. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. Also, I, I, just as you know, this podcast is named uh, Soft Robotics Podcast and would like to ask you about whether you have any final comments about soft robotics, if you hear about it. And have you ever heard about soft robotics uh, as a emerging field? Um, I know about the company called, uh, what's it called? Soft, soft Robotics Inc. Soft Robotics Inc. Yeah. Yes, I know about them who bought the Boston Dynamics Big Dog, yes. which is soft robotics. Um, but you mean soft robotics in the sense that they're soft to touch? Yes. Um, do you think that's something I would like to comment about it, or it's not uh, um, as you like about soft robotics? It depends. On, I mean, it, it, it can't be a bad thing to have soft robots. <laughs> it's got to be a good thing because if you're if you're working in a, in the workplace, and robots will become much more interactive with humans. It won't be shielded by a big. Mm-hmm. A great big system. Yeah. If they if they bump into you and they're very soft and don't hurt you, that would be much better. And yeah. I I really like the stuff of compliant robotics as yeah. well, mm-hmm. soft and compliant robotics, so that you can brush against a robot in the way you could brush against a human, and it will work around you. Mm-hmm. So that that would be that could be much more useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, times when you might need a hard metal robot, but I think. Robots being soft and not hurting people, but yeah. you're never going to make really soft rubbery wheels so that can go over people's feet. I mean, you've still got weight. A robot still carries weight, and that's one of the things. If you can make them very light and soft, now that and compliant, then you're you're away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, it's very interesting. Uh, and I, we are just close to the end, so I would like to ask you, uh, what's your dreams or goals for your grandchildren? Yeah, I know it's maybe a cliche question, but I think. Maybe you think about that every day, what you want with them or what for them. Well, I mean, in terms of work, they're all, I mean, my grandchildren, I now have a great grandchild as well. <laughs> my grandchildren re- range in age from 32 to 20, no, no, sorry, not 26, that's my daughter, one of my daughters, range in age from 32 to two. Mm-hmm. I've got a 30-year age range there and some are already succeeding, but they're all very good people. I mean, I would like to see them being people who can have a lot of fun in their life and enjoyment and happiness and yet be upstanding, Mm -hmm. good people who are morally correct. And at the moment, all the ones who've grown up are certainly that. The little ones you can't tell yet, but my my daughters have been very good parents, and so they they create they've created my ambition for them is that they find that one job, and I have to say this because it took me quite a long time to find the job that suited me. Yeah. I was a failure until I was twenty in twenty eight, um, really was, and job after job, and to to be able to find that one job where you can excel because you might be working in a job and it's, you're okay at it and it's dull plod, and maybe around the corner you find out that there was something completely different that you could have excelled in. So I want them to be not get into debt, have a job that they love, mm. and uh, be, be be happy and and give me lots more great 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 grandchildren.